I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. If throughout its history, GE brought good things to life, you might say that along with the select few others, Beth Comstock brought imagination to GE. And if you listen to her, you just might understand how to bring it to your own business, too. Beth's story perhaps might seem hard to imagine. She began in PR and rose to become a GE vice chair. Along the way, among other roles, she served as GE's first chief marketing officer in 20 years and operated GE Business Innovations. She's also left her mark on American pop culture. Beth helped lead GE's strategic shift to Imagination and the Imagination at Work brand campaign. She served as president of Integrated Media at NBC Universal, where she launched Hulu. She also greenlit GE's iconic post-9-11 ad of a resolute Lady Liberty rolling up her sleeves, climbing off her podium with the simple words underneath, We will roll up our sleeves. We will move forward together. We will overcome. We will never forget. What does imagination look like? That's what Beth explains in her terrific and personal new book, Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power to Change. It's also what she explains to me in this conversation. Before my conversation with Beth, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Beth Comstock. Beth, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. So uh, we should start with, I think, imagination, because uh, I imagine that that could mean a whole lot of different things to different people. So um, what is imagination to you, and what is the imagination gap? Yeah, well, imagination to me is um, this, I've tried to narrow the definition in the context of my book to meaning the sort of risk is, it's the risk we take to act on imagination, and this this kind of creative leaps. Um, of creativity and uh, experimentation toward the future. That, that's what I'm talking about. And to me, the imagination gap is the gap that's happening, certainly what I experience in business. I think it may be happening in other organization settings, education, uh, other institutions, where we aren't encouraging this, this imaginative thinking and really it's creative problem solving. And um, we want to already know the answer. We we redu- we're reduced to kind of checklist efficiency. Um, we never can have enough data to prove we should move forward. And so we're somewhat frozen. And to me, the imagination gap is where this possibility for the future goes to die because we want it to be perfect and we want to know the answer. And I think it's a, it's a problem that we should, we should be addressing. So let's tackle first what I imagine are some of the challenges for each of us um, individually. Um, so, so first, what, what's the stifling aspect? Um, I, one of the things you write about, and you know, we've read it elsewhere, is we all, as humans, have a sense of creativity. In fact, you, you write, it's a great um, use, and, and your biology background comes in you know, when you reference Darwin and the, the requirement, almost this human survival requirement of, of creativity and change or die was you know, almost how I took it. So we've got it in us. Let's just say it's part of our DNA. It's part of Darwinism. Um, what stops us? Well, I, one, I mean, we get comfortable. I think people are comfortable with a point of view they have. 
the people they know. Um, we like people like us. And so I think this, this sense of just comfort with what we know, we're just not, we don't feel good about ambiguity and uncertainty and difference. And so it's just the tension within us. And, yeah, as humans, we, we're an adaptation machines. Like, look at what we've done over, over all the millennia of time of our development. But we have this tension in ourselves. And it shows up in certainly organizations. It shows up in bad behavior. And really it's fear. People are afraid of not knowing. I think that's a big part of it. They're afraid of taking a risk. And especially I think we've created this cycle of um, – of perfection seeking and certainly social media and other things, uh, you know, amplify that where if we think everybody's living these perfect lives and we're not. Um, and so I think all of that um, has come together in a way um, that, that holds us back because we're afraid and we're afraid of taking risks. That, and and we're fr- I believe we're also perhaps afraid of our imaginations and our creativity. Um, there's a statistic I cite that, you know, in developed countries, up to 75% of people who are, have been polled in some of these research studies say they're not creatively fulfilled at work. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of untapped needs. It's probably anybody who's listening to this, it's someone they work with, if not themselves. And um, And creativity makes people afraid. I don't know, it's like... It's just to wear a beret and, you know, paint on a canvas or something. And it's really problem-solving. And why I think it's a challenge and why we're perhaps maybe even more fearful now is just the pace of change, the kind of change is different than what many of us grew up with. We thought change is very linear. I'll handle this, then I'll move to the next thing. It's what I call emergent change, meaning it's sort of popping up all over the place. New patterns are forming and they disrupt us seemingly out of nowhere, and it's happening all over the place. And so we don't know how to deal with that uh, because it's so many new situations. And so how do you deal with new challenges, both good and bad? You have to have creative problem solving. You haven't been here before. What do we do? We go back to the way we used to do things, to what we knew was comfortable as opposed to try to figure out a new way forward. It's, it's taxing. You know, listening to you right there and the fear of ambiguity and the concerns around change and the human emotional, you know, distress maybe, and, that you know, my word obviously, not yours, but but that that can cause internally, um, you know, the phrase that's coming to mind is make America great again. Does that resonate? It, is that, it, it resonates with me in business, too. I mean, we see a lot of people trying to bring back the glory days of XYZ leader or, you know, this is the way it was done in this company, and so we have to be able to do it over here as opposed to, well, how do we figure our way forward? So there is comfort in going back to something we knew because we saw how it turned out. So your book brings together so many different strands. It brings together your personal story. Um, it brings together, you know, what you accomplished and, and the things you didn't accomplish at GE, at NBC, um, and elsewhere, what you saw. Um, one of the things that you, that you talk about is that this, this sentiment, and many of us feel it. I mean, the, the, the human parts and the individual parts of your own life that you bring through the book, um, I think a lot of us can relate to. And, and there's this phrase that you had to talk yourself out of using. Um, I'm not an expert, but um, this isn't my area, but. 
and, and we all do that. When you, you know, when I read you, you writing those words, I thought to myself, my gosh, how many times do I use that as a preamble to, you know, it, it's almost like a, a, a crutch or a, or a safety net. Yeah. To, talk talk yeah. to me about that phrase. A lot of us use it. A lot of us try to, you know, use it as a way to get into throwing out that idea, but protecting ourselves simultaneously. Um, how, how did you notice it in yourself and, and how did you get away from it? Yeah, I love that you brought that up. Again, I'm laughing to myself because I still do that. Someone just called me out on that last week. So mm. even though I write about it in the book like I've somehow cured myself of that, I haven't. Um, and it's, it's kind of, again, that tension in ourselves of we have a bit of a fear that I'm not an expert in this area. Uh, I, I, here I was, I'll use NBC, um, in the digitization of media was, was a particularly tense time that I write about in, the, in my career, but... Here I was, a marketing person who was suddenly thrust into the world of the Internet. And I had to, I had, you know, I'd go into meetings, well, I'm not an Internet expert. And I'd be like, well, why are you here? But I did have expertise, which was behavior. I knew how people ad- adapt to technology. So I had to go in and say, okay, one, I have the kind of expertise that's relevant here. But the other point, I think, to that tension is that often with fresh eyes, with a knowledge you have from one area coming into something else, you see patterns, you see things that need to be said and and only you can see from that kind of vantage point. And we discount that because we think, well, I'm not an expert in the Internet. So what do I possibly know? Um, so I'm, I'm really referring to two things. You know, one, express those observations because you do have some kind of um, ex- expertise in the world that's brought you to this point. And two, um, you know, realize your strengths in those situations. So I was really trying to tee out both of those things. How do people react when you talk about that aspect? I, I imagine you talk about the permission slip, give yourself the permission yeah. to, and and I feel like that's what you're trying to give all of us um, in a sense. Do, do people react to that when you when you speak on these topics? Do they, uh, do, they do they react to that permission aspect? Yeah, it's funny. I'm glad you brought that up. I um, That is a core theme of my book. Just give yourself permission to kind of imagine a better way and then take steps to make it happen. And and it's so simple. Um, but often we're what holds us back. And I think that's at the heart of it. That's what I experienced in business, the bad behavior, the fear factor we all have. It's because we hold ourselves back. We're afraid of the difference. We're afraid of not knowing the answer. So we're afraid we have to ask permission. And sometimes you do. Okay, I'm not... But oftentimes you don't, and what's this? Grab agency, kind of don't be a victim to these these situations. Um, or within that constraint, this should push you to be more creative. I worked in a big company, and people often thought we had a big budget. And, mm. okay, granted, GE was big, but GE was also notoriously tight with a buck. So we rarely had the biggest budget. Big brand did not mean big budget, and so – Working within those constraints, it would have been so easy to say, well, we can't do that. We don't have any money. But we'd had to figure out our way, partnerships. For us on the marketing side, it was working with startup media companies as they were coming up because they were looking for an established brand to prove their credibility. And they didn't have their business model, so they weren't that expensive yet. That was a risk. So those are some of the kinds of things I think that I mean by the permission. It's at a very small level. Do you really need your boss's permission? Mm. Is that really the issue? Um, and then understanding your constraints and kind of that creative problem solving, that imagination, you know, push is what how to me how they go together. 
Was that always in you? Uh, I mean, you you write about it very candidly at the beginning of the book um, that you found yourself in your early to mid, I guess, mid 20s, um, not living the life that you wanted to live. And you you kind of fought your way out of that, um, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of along the way. Um, maybe not maybe maybe 10 steps forward half a step back is is a little more accurate but but yeah. you know it wasn't you know not everything in life is, is a straight line but w- was that in you always do you, do you think the that creativity the, the the ability i mean surely when you were in your mid 20s new kid not li- you know in a marriage not living the life that you believed you wanted to live um, I don't imagine that you imagined that your future step would include being vice chair at GE. So was that imagination always in you? What did you do? I, I'm sure that, that your personal story is what a lot of people must take away from from the book and, and from you personally. So was that always in you? Well, I, I think it was, but I wasn't always aware of it being in me. And I, I, I intentionally shared a very personal story, which makes this a different kind of business book. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was important because I'm talking about transformation at a personal level, at a team and a company level, and I had to show myself how I did that and where it went wrong or didn't. And so at that particular point in time, the reason I shared a personal divorce story was because I had a, I had a huge, took a huge leap ahead into the unknown by saying, I don't, this is not the path I want to be on. I, being married in this relationship is not the right one for me. I, had a, I was choosing a life as a single mother for, for a period of time, and, um, and that was incredibly risky. It's not like I said, I'm going to go be the head of GE, you know, I'm going to see where I can get. I just knew I needed to craft a different story for myself, and I was willing to, one, admit that this had been a failure, that I was a failure. And again, I kind of write in the book, small town, good girl. You know, I had to deal with all that. Um, and then I just had to make it work, whatever it was. I had to imagine that there would be a better future. For me, it was just as simple as I wanted to start a career and go to New York where the media world was. I mean, I didn't have much aspiration beyond that, to be honest, but I just knew I wanted to move forward. And then each step created kind of new opportunities to think about for the future. That, um, I think, was always in me, but I needed that catalyst, I think, to probably bring it out. And I tried to share smaller ones in the book. For example, I shared one when I was trying to be a reporter early in my career, and I kept hounding a news director every day, which was very unlike me as a shy person. But it just brought out this resilience in me until he got on the phone and yelled and was like, I'll never hire you. You look like a 12-year-old. I'm never going to do this. But it brought out this resilience in this, like, I'm going to show you. So... I needed those moments to kind of push me forward, and everybody has their version of that. That's why I shared them. Yeah, it's a great lesson. It reminds me as well. I recently had the privilege to talk with uh, a journalist, David A. Kaplan, who's just written a terrific book on the Supreme Court, uh, the most dangerous branch. And in, in for for the book, he spoke with, um, uh, I believe it's a majority of the Supreme Court justices. And I said, well, how, you know, how'd you get them to talk to you? And he said, for one of them, he, he said he asked that at the end of the interview, of course, not at the beginning because he didn't want him or her to walk away. But at the end, he said, you know, why did you, you know, why did you agree to talk with me? And the justice said, so you would stop calling me. I really wanted you to stop by. <laughs> That's a good answer. Sometimes it is that way, right? Yeah. You see, I'm the opposite. I will tell you, I ended up having been building a bit of a reputation, certainly at GE, as somebody 
who people could cold call me, and if they had a good enough crazy idea, I'd often want to talk to them or meet with them. So I uh, ended up developing a bit of a, a, a different approach myself in the sense maybe that sensitized me, but I think it was more that leading with curiosity and being interested in difference that would often make a kind of new idea or somebody with a different approach be something I wanted to learn about. Talk to me about the Statue of Liberty ad after 9-11. Uh, what, what did that mean? Just describe, I mean, you describe it in the book, obviously, but uh, um, what, what was the moment, what was the ad, and uh, why did you go forward with the ad that everyone around you seemed to be telling you just wasn't going to work and then, of course, did spectacularly? Yeah, well, in the aftermath of 9-11, and certainly everybody was reeling from it. GE uh, had, had a lot of issues business-wise. Our customers couldn't fly their planes. We lost a few employees. You know, horrible, horrible situation on so many levels. Um, and people were scared. And um, so at the time, I hadn't even yet been named chief marketing officer. I was leading advertising, though. And I kind of tried to lean into that zeitgeist moment of people's fear and feeling like we've, the resilience of America and what can GE do. And so my answer was, well, there's got to be a story or an ad we could do, which was probably the wrong instinct at the time. You wouldn't necessarily take out an ad and say that your company's great at that horrible moment. But um, it just felt like a moment we needed to express a sentiment and kind of rally our, our employees and our customers to say, like, we can move ahead. And so we called in the ad agency um, and they thought it was a horrible idea, and buried at the bottom of the stack of ideas they gave us was this incredibly powerful um, illustration of Lady Liberty getting down off of the pedestal, rolling up her sleeve. It was like, we got to do that, um, because it's, it, it really expressed that emotion we ha- had collectively, certainly in our company and the country, of we will move forward, we got to get back to work, like we'll persevere. Yeah. So I went to Jeff ML. Again, keep in mind, new CEO, he had been in the job four days. And um, he barely knew me. It's unbelievable, know. right? He was 45 years old, and he, he literally became CEO on September 7th, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Insane. And so, you know, it was just this, you know, he replaced Jack Welch, this iconic CEO, and at that yeah. moment, just everything changed. And here was me, like, tagging at his sleeve going, hey, I think we need to do an ad. And he got the strategy, and the image was very powerful. And... Um, and, you know, I pulled some of the other executives, and they all thought it was a horrible idea. Why would we stick our neck out? Um, but it just I, I just, I just felt the anxiety of the moment, and to me, story was the way to express it. And so we put the ad in, and, and um, I was up all night worrying that it was a bad mistake. It was in print paper, print newspaper, because at the time, none of the television networks were taking ads anyway. Mm. And the next day, employees were incredibly proud. Customers were like, oh, my gosh. And it was just sort of we will go on kind of message and very subtly brought to you by, uh, by GE. It wasn't GE. And um, we had reason to go to um, the New York Stock Exchange a few days later um, because the market was coming back online, and Jeff went down to visit, and I went on that trip. And I was so humbled to just see the ad on all the traders' kiosks. And yeah. it meant something, and it was on newsstands in New York. And so I, I put that story in there because for me it was a it was a career risk kind of thing, but it was also just understanding that mood of the moment and being tapped into it and trying to um, use the power of story to you know rally and inspire people to move forward. That that was why I was I used that story. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that ability that comes out. I don't know if you 
mean it to come out, but it, it does. You, you do seem to have an ability to put a finger on the mood of the moment. Um, you, you know, you, you give that example right there. You felt like that ad was the right thing to do, that that story was the right story to tell at that time. And the people around you were telling you it wasn't. Um, you were at the forefront of the environment and, yeah. uh, you know, making the change and eco imagination. Um, I'll get to my core question in a second. One name is missing for you. Got a lot of names in your book. You got Jack Welch. You got Jeff Zucker. Um, obviously, you have ML. You have Steve Jobs. Um, one name that's not in your book is Donald Trump. He had a big show while yeah. you were at GE and at NBC. Um, why is he not in your book? Yeah, well, I never really worked directly with him or um, that that part of the entertainment division uh, who had greenlit apprentice and um you know put that on i mean donald trump came and spoke at a couple of ge events but i never really had much interaction so it wasn't part of my personal narrative um but certainly i think that whole move to reality tv hmm. what what happened uh has we've seen unfold um you know i think i think we saw media go to go to that and i you know i i, I think that opened up a whole a whole host of things where we've now seen uh that led to trump's presidency but i didn't share it because it wasn't something i had was directly involved in not necessarily part of that narrative but it was part of change that happened in media for sure well, one thing that you did do and and i don't know if this is an example of you know crazy imagination or um, an example for our politics of today. But after the 2008 election, um, within GE, you were tasked with rewriting GE's story, right? That was uh, among the many things yep. that Jeff Immelt seemed to ask you to do almost daily. I'm sure you just were waiting for him to give you a ring. Uh, you know. We were never done. It was always iterating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the inter yeah. What was your name for him? The iteration? Serial iterator. Serial iterator. Yeah, yeah. It's a great, it's a great nickname. I'm sure he loves that. I'm sure he says thank you for that. <laughs> But, He's that way. It was good. It was good, but it was also frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I, I bet it was. But but what you did do was you worked across both sides of the aisle to help you write that story. Uh, you brought in David Plouffe from the Obama uh, administration or or the Obama campaign, and yep. Steve Schmidt from McCain. Um, how do you do that? And I know this isn't uh, your job, but you've taken all sorts of jobs that you didn't have previous experience in, so I'm not going to give you that excuse. Um, was, was there anything about working with the two of them who had just been in, you know, figurative all-out war for the 2008 um, election? Um, anything you can say about working with both of them back then and any tips or guidance around making politics work today? Yeah, well, I in the aftermath of 2008, we were coming out of the financial crisis as well. So, you know, the politi what we were looking we were looking for our new story. I mean, G Capital had the business model had just basically gone away overnight, and we needed to tell our story more of this um, sort of technology manufacturing company. And um, it seemed like a campaign kind of mindset. We had to fight for our story. We had to fight for our way. And I thought these campaigns seemed to be the great place to learn. I called up Chuck Todd, who I knew a little bit from NBC, said, yeah. who's good out there? I immediately thought of Plouffe because Obama had won. Um, and I didn't expect him to say Steve Schmidt. And I hired them both. <laughs> Funnily, I didn't tell them both in the beginning I hired them. I was a little nervous of the, the battle between them. So I didn't tell the other one that I had hired them. And they both went to University of Delaware. Neither of them graduated and were called back to do a special 
thing at University of Delaware, and they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, I'm working for GE. Oh, I'm working for GE. So uh, <laughs> I had to confront that. <laughs> it was like a, we were, it, was, it was crazy. Anyway, that would have been a bad thing. They needed to work together. Um, but what I learned from working with them um, what just very profound things. I mean, Steve Schmidt is amazing at telling a story, at fighting for a story, at just getting the feedback loops of how's your message going, how are people receiving it, this works, this doesn't, just just intensity of just ongoing iteration of your message. I, I'm forever grateful to learn that, and just his intensity in general. I mean, he's an intense guy, but a softy in the, in the inside. Mm. And Pluff was like this Zen master. It was always about the strategy. It was always about the strategy, and don't get distracted. And so it was really an interesting tension to be able to work with both of them. I mean, David really held, had us think about the, you know, the personal connections and making sure we were using that strategy at a very personal level. And then in his way, Steve was doing the same thing, but with a bit more grit. And I think campaigns are just a really great training ground for um, beating up your idea, getting feedback, and just being very competitive and making sure your your story sells, if you will. I mean, if you if you can't tell it, you can't sell it, and that's how I how I you know how I capture that that point of time. What's your finger on the pulse of American society today? Uh, a lot of us are really concerned. A lot of Americans are very concerned. I, I definitely am, am concerned about the divide, about um, inequality gaps about the inability to come together around common core values, about the divide between what you discussed at the beginning of this conversation, um, the, the fear of ambiguity and the, the, the you know, reluctance towards change versus, on the other hand, progressive ideas that, that are, are aiming to push our society and our country forward. What's your finger on the pulse? Where are we today in your mind as a society? And how, I guess, let's leave it there. Where are we today um, as a society in your mind? Well, I think we're filled with fear. Um, we're afraid of other. We're afraid of difference. And yet difference is what makes us rich human beings. I mean, I tried to share in the book stories of how I had to push myself, you know, going to Saudi Arabia in the very early days where no one wanted to go there as a woman. And sometimes you just have to go to these places and understand. At the end of the day, it's people trying to do what's right. And I think we need to understand those differences instead of try to go back to the way things always were. I worry a lot as somebody who's been, uh, an, you know, sort of in the forefront of technology, um, progress has a bad name, but at the same time, I understand it. It's too fast. It's too disruptive. And I think if we were to listen to each other a bit more and develop our context, our creative problem-solving skills, solving skills, I worry about education most acutely, that, um, that that's the place maybe we need to go back and reevaluate. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I share that concern. I think it starts with each one of us being a bit more open to difference, being a bit more open to learn, um, and try to find some common ground. We all want to make America its best America, and that means we've got to push together. There are some things from the past and some things from the future. Can't we figure out a way to bring those together? Uh, and I worry, I, I think that it's hard to come to a place in the middle, but I don't, I don't know how you don't do that. In any company, you, you try to rally around, you know, the future and the now, and you try to make both things, invest in both things. How can we not do that? That, that worries me that we're, we're a bit going backwards and not enough focusing on what we need to solve now and thinking about the future. And, and Beth, to close out, um, as someone who's, uh, you know, it, 
taken on the brand of imagination and taken on the brand of, of future and what's next. Um, do you worry, worry is the wrong word, but do you, for you personally, um, are, are you focused on what's next? Are you focused on right now? Uh, should, should folks thinking about 2020 re- recognize that Beth Comstock is out there and available to help tell a story? Um, wh- where's your focus? Uh, it's a great question, and my focus has been getting my book out. Uh, this was to be my gap year. It ended up being my book year, but um, I am beginning again. I'm going to reenter business in a very different way. I love story. I uh, don't have a plan to do anything in politics except to help some candidates, perhaps. But um, I, um, I, I guess my focus on the future for all of us would be, um, you know, I mean, the future's coming fast, and we're worried about the future of work the future of our skills. And I think put yourself out there where you're learning some of these different skills. It's not just about coding. It's about creative problem solving. Are you doing enough for your kids to put them in situations where they're figuring it out, where they're being asked to solve problems in new ways? Are we encouraging the, that creative problem solving in our kids? Are we doing that in our work? I, I think that's very much what I want to focus on in the next, and, and you know, kind of what's next for me. Um, so that's, we'll see where that leads me, but that's, that's kind of where I've set my sights. Beth, thank you. Thank you for your time. And, and, you know, the book crosses over your, your background has crossed over so many different aspects, it, digital technology, media, environment, industrial, uh, putting pilots in, uh, operating rooms, which someone's got to read the, the book to understand <laughs> I that. I love refer- that story it's too. A, it's a great. <laughs> what does a pilot, an airplane pilot have to do with an, an anesthesiologist? Read it and find out. Read it and find out. Well, look, you, you can't stop promoting. Can't, you can't, you can take the, take the woman out of PR, but can't, uh, can't do the, the inverse. <laughs> exactly. Beth, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for the opportunity. 